Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be looking at the legacy of J.B. Rhine, who is widely considered to be the father of modern parapsychology. My guest is his daughter, Sally Rhine Feather, born in 1930. She is currently on the board of directors of the Rhine Research Center in Durham, North Carolina. She is co-author with Michael Schmicker of The Gift, The Extraordinary Paranormal Experiences of Ordinary People. And she is also co-editor with Barbara Ensrud of the newly released book, J.B. Rhine, Letters, 1923 to 1939, ESP and the Foundations of Parapsychology. Sally lives in Durham, North Carolina, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Hello, Sally. What a pleasure to be with you once again. Good to be with you, Jeff. We're going to be talking about your the, the new book that you and Barbara Ensrud have edited about the letters that your father wrote, mostly before you were born, from... 1923 to 1939. So, when the last letter in the book was written, you were about 10 years old. Yes. Mm -hmm. In 1940, I was 10 years old. One might say that you were born right into the thick of the ongoing development of, of an infant science that we can look back now some 90 years later and, and say it's still going strong. It's amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I lived this long to see that it was going strong again. I know that there were moments in, in the book where it wasn't clear whether parapsychology would survive as a science. It, it, isn't this just the way of parapsychology as we've known it? There are ups and downs, and for any one person in their own life, there's sometimes downs because the experiment didn't work the way you thought it would, or you, your professor didn't like you doing this work in his studio or research lab. So, yeah, it's a precarious science. I don't know why we like it so much, Jeff. Here we are. Well, I, I think people feel a special passion for it because, for my way of thinking, and I know it doesn't sound very scientific, studying parapsychology is a, a way to be closer to my own inner being. That's a good way of putting it, yes. And after I read your story, which I had not heard before, uh, you know, the various things that happened to you recently of how you, how you came into the field. I think that's particularly true. I came in a different way, but I certainly respect and can understand fully why you are still in it and will always be in it. Well, and I know you've taken some breaks uh, from parapsychology yourself. You had a clinical psychology practice, but here you are uh, 
continuing the the work of the the Rhine Center, really the work that your father started before you were born, and your mother. Both of them were in it completely. She was the one to have the children as nature has allowed it to be. So during the same time when he was getting started, almost that summer was the first time that they could, as a young couple, had enough stability to begin a family. And then, wow, there were four of them in the same period of time that he was getting his early results. Her part was, of course, quietly in those days, not even discussed, barely mentioned in letters, which, uh, of course, women of today would not handle it quite the same way. But it was universal. It was agreed upon for both of them. That was the way it was. And he'd come home at night and help out and, and so forth. And at least he he was around as a father, and that was uh, very helpful to us as children. I don't know what the children offered to him other than a slight distraction from the worries of his work, other than just what any father feels. As I recall from the letters, your mother received her Ph.D. in botany, and, and then your father received his Ph.D. in botany after her. Yes, that's correct. Actually, you know, she was four years older than he was and had been a childhood friend, not thinking of the romance that might ensue because of the difference in their age. So, But I think that a few years older, a little more maturity uh, when you have children— <laughs> is also a good time so that they work together better than if they were 20-year-olds trying to make a living. And and the interesting thing to me is that after having each of them achieved uh, degrees in botany, I think from the University of Chicago, and they were in a position to have successful scientific careers in their chosen field of study. They jointly made a decision to move out of botany into this very, very risky field that was at the time known as psychical research. Absolutely. And those letters reflect that. What what The purpose, of course, of our book was As my forward uh, or preface said, um, I already knew that my dad was controversial, and a lot of people thought and still think this is nothing to all this. So I wanted people to just see in his words, not like me defending me defending him or all, but what he said. And you're right; he started off with this strong. They both together heard Sir Arthur Conan Doyle speak, developed a common interest in psychic research. So it was a common interest from the beginning. And that made it a lot easier when he wanted to leave. She she might have stayed, but um, he, he felt he just couldn't work on a botanist bed, bench or whatever the rest of his life uh, when he had such a strong interest for something that he thought was more significant for mankind. Well, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, of course, the author of the Sherlock Holmes novels, who was one of the most famous men in the world at that time, and a passionate spiritualist and a very articulate speaker, I'm sure, although I never had the privilege of hearing him speak. Me too. No, uh, yes, he spoke at the university, I think at the University of Chicago, or else in Chicago when they went to hear him. I never did hear more about it, but that piqued their interest, and then they went back and looked into what psychic research, what the societies of psychical research 
in this country and overseas and, and then read, read, read a lots of material. Yeah. It seemed as if the call to understand the deep philosophical and deep scientific questions that were posed by the challenge of spiritualism just seemed so much more exciting than working in a botany laboratory. And it really tied into his um, wanting to have been a minister and being very devout in his teenage years and then being disappointed that he couldn't, after he encountered scientific method in college, he felt, well, where's the evidence? I don't know. I can't see the scientific evidence that might underlie my spending my life in studying and in, in preaching and so forth. So it was a sidetrack if he could find if, if uh, some of the claims of psychic research were true, that would be a way that science, he could look at it from a scientific point of view. So it was a door to get to what I think was always a basic uh, early uh, life choice and, and devout feeling that he was wanting to help mankind. It was a time of turmoil. Like, well, we know about turmoil today, uh, but there was turmoil at the turn of that century um, and, and, and after the end of the First, first World War, uh, a lot of questioning and doubts and so forth. And, and, and he had also a lot of interest in survival because of so many young men who were having been killed in the war. Up until that time, for the most part, the field of psychical research was a field study science. It really didn't uh, achieve uh, experimental status until your father came along. I mean, there were a couple of experiments done here and there, but no serious push to establish parapsychology as a science with double blinds and statistics and uh, the normal uh, research protocols found in science. Psychology. Exactly. It, that, that, that was the difference because uh, whether some good research was done by the people overseas mainly, uh, but it wasn't coordinated and it wasn't in one location, particularly an academic location uh, to start off with. Um, and, and, and that was he was able to do that by a series of, of his own hard work to begin with. And then some fortunate coincidences that Dr. McDougall at Duke University was hoping to set a psychic research department there when he moved there from Harvard. Um, so it, it was it was a fortuitous connection there that, that helped at that point. Nowhere else in the world at that time was there anyone like William McDougall with his stature, professor. You know, he had, at that time he was and probably the most popular psychologist uh, in Britain and maybe in this country. So that made a big difference. And I think it's fair to say that your parents sort of struggled for several years to, to get their footing. There are many letters to different uh, academics who might help support them or sponsor them so that they could make the transition. It wasn't a simple matter just to move from botany into psychical research. There was a, a lot of sidetracks along the way. You know, there was a, the famous, invest, famous within the, this area, small, small area that we're talking about, of his investigating a medium and finding her fraudulent after already almost falling in love with her beforehand because it all seemed so, not her particularly, but the idea of her had been so 
uh, positively presented to him by people in the AFPR at that time. And so he expected something really remarkable, and then he would come and learn how to study mediums, and it would go on that way. Well, that, that all fell apart, and even his effort to work with uh, the fine people in the British site, there was a, not British, a Boston Society for Psychical Research that was looking for other mediums that didn't believe in Marjorie was real. Anyway, he worked and worked and worked for a year, and my mother both uh, making a living and trying to investigate other mediums. Then he even came down to Duke with a, uh, a manuscript of medium mystic readings, which were quite remarkable and certainly indicated something psychic going on with a man named John Thomas, whom they helped, uh, who later came to Duke and got his own degree uh, at, at, at their helping him to do that. So there was a degree provided uh, on the basis of psychic research to uh, John Thomas, I believe a master's degree, maybe a doctorate degree, yeah. But all of that was going on, and that was part of the struggle to discover which way are we going to go. And J.B. said when he found um, that medium seemed fraudulent to him, that he would never again uh, accept uh, something from someone else unless he had control of the experiment. Or if, if he knew what was going on and he was in charge, then he could have uh, he could rule out the uh, possibility of cheating because he wasn't going to cheat. And so that was that led him around. It took a little while, and you know, the adventure with the horse and all that before he got involved at Duke in forced choice testing, which is what he brought to the field. It may seem dull, but it's about the only way that it could have been done at that time, particularly with behaviorism going on. Well, I'm going on rattling on too much, and uh, let me get back to your question. Well, you mentioned the uh, incident with the horse. This is a very interesting story because it appeared at first that this was a horse who had telepathic abilities, but then later on, things may have changed. But this was Lady the Horse, and they worked with her for a while, and they, they had McDougal coming too, and they would, um, I mean, I heard this story many times, and uh, I didn't get to see Lady. She had passed away by the time I was old enough to see her. But uh, at the very beginning, she acted differently. She was in a, a passive state. She didn't seem to be noticing them. They were hiding behind a, a wall and and her, got the mistress out of the way. The one who owned the horse was clear, clearly capable and was probably giving clues. They, at the beginning, they thought they really, they really did have something, but as they investigated it more and more, uh, she either lost it or it was, she clearly was picking up clues. So th that was another example of where you don't have control of the experiment. Uh, you can't really handle it. If they had been, if it had been their horse, they would have figured out a better way. Well, I noticed throughout the entire book of letters, there is this struggle going on, on the one hand, to be able to convince other academics and the world at large about the validity of the experiments which uh, J.B. and his staff members did have control over. And on the other hand, uh, he, I think he felt a need to be critical of many, many uh, claims that were being made and reported to him that didn't really pan out at all. Yeah, yeah, they had to be, the, the test was a research setup, really, uh, even if they'd gotten into animal side, as later did, 
you have to be very careful and know what you're doing. But certainly uh, with humans uh, in the laboratory, applied testing, but that, that's probably true to some extent of anything in psychology. But because it's so common, people don't get so critical about uh, if you were doing a study and learning nonsense syllables, people wouldn't be questioning you unless you got unless you made some unusual claim. But of course, ESP itself is an unusual claim. We all know that. And if you weren't into it and watch it and seen it happen, which I have and you have, uh, you you really even so you want to have good controls, no matter even if you know it's the real thing, it's got to stand the test of other people. I think the big landmark occurred, if if I recall correctly, in 1934 with the publication of his first monograph on ESP. And at that point, he had been doing research with the cards, the uh, ESP cards or Zener cards for several years. And the monograph was published by the Boston Society for Psychical Research, but it almost immediately brought him international acclaim. Amazing. It was the time of radio and, and, well, and the time of the press, the science press made all the difference in the world. They picked it up and um, reported it accurately and then the public and the public found out about it. Uh, so that accidentally turned again to a big surprise. It wasn't a terribly well-written book, uh, he, but, he, but everything was included there. Uh, but it was his report, they have to get this out. And it was the result of a lot of people tests, you know, it wasn't JB himself. It was uh, soon, soon got to be Gaither Pratt, Charlie Stewart, and a host of other um, student, graduate students. And, and, and it, it was a pretty impressive, you can go back and look at it today. I have a, a well-worn copy was in, reprinted in this 1960. And if you can make your way through it, you can see what it, what it was, uh, how they got these results of, of numerous subjects, not just one but some six or seven really high-scoring subjects. So at that, at that point, your father was sort of thrust into the limelight from being an associate professor with a, a small team. He found that people all over the world were interested in communicating with him and that he, he was also able to begin to attract quite a bit of financial resources to open a, a substantial library or laboratory at Duke University. It's interesting in those letters, you see that, that how this goes along, things that happen like the famous medium uh, Eileen Garrett that founded the Parapsychology Foundation was asked to come down as a medium and be tested. And she did quite well herself and also her control. She was a, 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 a mental medium, and her control, uh, Yuvani, also scored well on these tests, even though she, later she confided those, she, that she didn't care for those damn cards, <laughs> to use her expression. But, but she was good-natured and very, uh, my father and she got along very well most of the time. So anyway, but a lot of things happened that brought some publicity along and, and then attracted other people. Eileen Garrett, was in, uh, connected with um, a number of wealthy people, one in particular, Mrs. Bolton, who became uh, JB's um, first large donor. And um, for quite a few years, 
she uh, she helped quite a bit. But he worked hard at it. It didn't. Nothing was easy. He he went after. He wrote letters. Well, you saw the letters, and you only saw a fraction of the letters because there were dozens and dozens and dozens of letters who people were interested and might give money, and some many of them did give and help. And at the same time that he now has a rather substantial laboratory at Duke University, the whole professional psychology community was developing, I guess you'd have to say, at least in part, a hostile attitude. And that gradually did develop. At first, the four of them that were there, the first four people, were Buddy Buddy and Zener helped him design the cards and um, somebody else taught him less. Uh, hypnosis uh, and and so forth, and but his own JB and his students got to be so popular. You can understand how it would be, and I don't think that JB was aware quite of that. He might have been a little more tactful or whatever. I don't know if there's any way you can do it when you become very popular and people are giving you money and the other people aren't. Um, you know, the typical psychology department doesn't get a lot of donations. But, but when it, it helped in 1935, when uh, a mutual agreement that he would get this, his own um, suite of, of offices quite physically separate from the psychologist. They remained personal friends over the years. I, I knew them. Some of them helped. A couple of them helped me get into graduate school by references from the same people that were his skeptics, Zeter and Adams and so forth. But, yeah, that's what happens in a small town in a... Uh, something like this sort. I can imagine many of the other psychologists felt that parapsychology was like the tail wagging the dog. There's not many people that have managed. It's too bad because it would have been, in many ways, it's really helpful to be remain in an academic setting where you know all about that, where you can call on colleagues and so forth. But on the other hand, when you're dealing with such a hot topic like this, it's just not, we're not ready for that yet. Of course, I wasn't around at the time, but I gather that it's very possibly the case that your father became the most famous professor at Duke University. It, it, it could be. You know, actually, he was bringing in a lot of money. It didn't just come to him. It came through the university, and that was money for the university, and the board of directors and people like that were interested in it. So it just happened. Uh, he was very careful. I remember we sort of things like you don't play. You have to be a little more circumspect in your manner if you're having dealing with a topic like this. You, you, you don't on Sunday afternoon, you don't go out and play ball, maybe. Or if you do, you keep it quiet. It has to be you have to be. I don't know. I just knew that that we, and I imagine a preacher's kid would have had the same experience. You have to be um, not bring any more attention to the family than you've already got any negative attention, because those were fascinating times for me uh, too. I mean, sometimes it was too much, and I just wish everybody go home and on the weekend and leave us some privacy. But but on the other hand, these were happy adults coming around, talking about exciting things, and then doing it with wartime still, and there'd be some soldiers coming around too that my mother would be helping for some of her service work. Um, so it was a, a jolly time, and um, 
And I was, I'm sure my friends, many of them were jealous of me when I would take them along to the, to the office to participate in experiments where they wanted children's subjects occasionally. But, but that's just the way it was. And I was thinking as a child then, I wish I had written down notes knowing I was going to be interviewed by you now and I could have had more details of, on, on the visitors that would come, you know, uh, these famous visitors from England and um, all the way up to, uh, oh, and people that you would know, like Erlander Haraldson and uh, in other more rec uh, recent times um, that came to the lab. They didn't come out to our house as much in those days, but many of them did in order to eat my mother's supper or <laughs> um, talk with them. Um, Stanley Krippner was around a lot um, at one point in time. And I know many of the most prominent people of that era were uh, eager to talk to your father, people like the novelist Upton Sinclair, who was doing ESP experiments of his own. Right, quite a book that Mental Radio, I, I don't know if it was, it came, it was published before JB's work began. It's a little bit like remote viewing, isn't it? You're drawing a picture up in one room and sending it to somebody and another wife, she was the receiver, and she was quite good at receiving his pictures, yes, but they became quite good friends, and he had known Upton Sinclair, his father had been an admirer of him and his uh, politics before, when, way back on the farm. Another person uh, of note who was, I think, very much influenced by your father was the great Swiss psychiatrist Carl Gustav Jung. Yes, the correspondence, by correspondence, absolutely. Yes, that was quite a, a famous um, dialogue between the two of them. Uh, he could never, that was almost, it was before the, the wartime came and Jung had to back off and keep quiet. I forget where he was then, but um, yeah. Uh, JB was trying to get him to, speak up a little bit more because of his own experiences, and it would have been a big coup to do that, but uh, he was not, well, he was his own experiences that were interesting to JB, and the, the knife had broken several parts. Um, it seemed to be like a spontaneous PK experience that no one could explain, although it came at the same time, I, I think, when he was working with the, the woman who owned the, the knife um, in some way. And I'm pretty sure it's fair to say that uh, JB's research is what inspired Jung to develop his theory of synchronicity. It, it could, yes, absolutely could be. He already had that concept. And then, um, yeah, and it's, I don't know which came first. But Jung had been having psychic experiences long before this. And it gave, it gave some validity. It helped him, I'm sure, in his um, communications. Uh-huh. As he became more and more famous, uh, of course, the criticisms mounted, and probably uh, the highlight of the establishment of parapsychology was the book that came out, I think, in 1939, ESP After 60 Years. Uh, that was kind of the, the summation of... Um that was kind of, and it is at the end of our book, because it was finally, by that point, uh, they had had enough criticisms going on and answer. I mean, years just, and you saw the letters, and you only saw a fraction. There'd be dozens of letters saying the same thing to a different 
newspaper person or a different professor because they were saying the same thing and same sort of criticisms. And finally, they organized them all together and they have there's some 32 criticisms that they separate specifically in this book. And and he worked, it was JB's book, but uh, it was with his team, you know, uh, Greenwood, the mathematician um, who lived down the street from us, a personal friend, family friend, and Gagatha Pratt. And uh, anyway, the, the, the team all worked hard together to put that book together. And it, it was a, a best, it wasn't a bestseller, but it was appreciated by, well, it was used as a textbook uh, in the textbook uh, realm or in the research I'm not saying this right. It was used for students for to read in a part of a course in Harvard that first year. And, and uh, there was a famous psychologist, at least famous to me, because I had known his work, uh, Boring, Edwin Boring, who had um, was a, he remained a skeptic, but he was interested, and he he invited JB up to his um, to speak to his students at one point at, at uh, was it Harvard? I believe Harvard. Mm-hmm. They courted each other. It never got, they were friendly enough. Uh, Boring himself was the one who made the comparison between the similarity between sensory perception and extrasensory perception, which J.B. had already, he thought that was particularly important because it helped indicate that this was a normal ability, not something neurotic or or, or, uh, deranged. Normal people uh, who are taking an ESP test, if they're tired, are unhappy, um, their scores will decline if they're happy and they're comfortable and it goes the other way. And a little a little alcohol may have an effect one way or the other, depending on how much. I even recall a, a study he reported on, on the effects of Benzedrine on ESP performance. Right. That decl- that lowered it didn't it it brought it, it brought a high score down as you got sleepy and dopey i think that letter got my attention he said that the benzedrine increased esp scores at first and then they dropped after a while so see when something like that's happened if if you could believe you were a psychologist that knew enough about it or was an observer of, it was real it's pretty hard to explain how come scores on guessing of something would be affected by that? Uh, now, affecting on learning, yeah, that's what anybody would understand that. But guessing what something's correct, that's got to be extra sensory perception. I, I think it's also important to mention that the very term extrasensory perception or ESP became a household word because of your father. Yeah, that's one thing that's happened. It's still going on, even with all the skeptics um, that are constantly, even now today. In fact, I think there's a wave going on now so that psychology departments are more critical. Now, there'll be a group that will finally begin to believe it a little bit, like when that book came out in 1940. But then a new group comes along and it's all the same over again, it seems to be. In addition to popularizing the phrase extrasensory perception, your father really also changed the name of the discipline. We don't usually use the term psychical research anymore. We use the term parapsychology, and it it was because of your father that the the language changed. The language, the methods, the the group. Another thing that he did, which I think is, is 
of course, an important part of this is that he worked as a group. No single man, hardly, or two men or two people working together. Um, I, I, the Curies did it as a couple, and my father and mother worked as a couple. But behind them and with them is a team to make it work. Somebody you can talk it over with. That's primary. That so you can bounce your ideas off of. They're not just. They don't just come out of the earth. It's also noteworthy, I think, that throughout his entire career, uh, he always emphasized scientific rigor. That seemed to be the most important concern that he had. It is, and it was uh, by and large uh, the unit, the group kept aware of something. If something cheating was going on, uh, you you worked as a team. I worked as a team once with a person from another country, and um, but the results were checked just as carefully as, as any of them had, had done them. And we found they, I didn't know it. Somebody who was checking it, I found out that she was cheating. Broke my heart. My father just handled that very diplomatically and sent her back home. Uh, that didn't always happen with, the, of course, the other people working with them were the ones that caught the fraud later that was very significant because it went much further and much higher up than what I had experienced. So there wasn't much over the years. If somebody was caught cheating, they they got rid of them and left. And, and they were results that the way you do tests are such that you can check on it. Sooner or later. Now, sometimes it was later if the person in charge was an important person there. And in one case, it was too. But, um, yeah, you has got to be rigor. Otherwise, I mean, the whole thing is, why waste your life on something that's not real? I used to check the data when I was a kid, you know, 15, and I began to check the data, help them check the data when they were a little short of handed. But, and so I remember how careful we had to be. But during the early days, the the critics assumed that the parapsychologists, if they weren't cheating themselves, the, they were being gullible and duped by the research subjects who must have been cheating. That that group of people like yeah, Gaither Pratt and so forth had gotten together and right and um, but um, no that they're just you and that's good why you when you have a whole team because you can. You know, everybody, all the whole group of them could hardly be. Today, we can say that for better or worse, there are hundreds of individuals doing doctoral level research in parapsychology, a great deal of it in, in Britain as a result of Robert Morris, who went over to England. And uh, to my knowledge, Morris is one of the people who got trained in parapsychology working uh, in Durham. Indeed he did. Uh, yes, he did. Robert Morris was so, I was, we, we missed him so much. He was helping us during our difficult times after JB was gone. And then unfortunately he died too young, but uh, he was a marvelous man. And he was in, a Duke graduate student at the same time I was a little behind me. Um, and then he's, I think he was in the summer school program. I'm not sure, but he was a, uh, certainly a helper with the, with the summer school program. Yes, but Europe has now branched out, got its own sources, and it was so. And you know, JB knew most all in his lifetime. He he knew nearly all the people that were working overseas. Certainly, Hans Bender in Germany, who helped replicate his work here, 
oh, so much. Yeah, he, he knew them all by name and if they came to visit here in many cases. Well, I, I certainly made a pilgrimage to Durham when I first started out. I met your father. Uh, uh, the first thing he wanted to know when he heard I was doing doctoral research in parapsychology was who was supervising me. <laughs> and and when I explained to him I was working under Michael Scriven, who had given the keynote address to the Parapsychological Association, I think in 1961 or 62, he said to me, well, he's a good man. I do remember him, uh, yes. Well, I, I did not realize you worked with him, yes. And also, it's worth mentioning that your father was instrumental in founding the Parapsychological Association. Yeah, he was one, that, that began here at Duke in, as late as 67, I think, or maybe 57, 57, I think, yes. And there were several other people, um, yeah, around here or, or from involved, like a close close friends like McConnell from Pittsburgh and who were in, involved in that or a group of them. Yeah, and that was so important. The PA is is, is really doing well now. I'm, it's amazing how it's chugged along and yeah, and, and we're going to have um, uh, it's going to be uh, held, uh, uh, their annual convention is going to be held uh, here in Durham this summer, but it's going to be by Zoom again. Uh, of course, many people don't know that the Parapsychological Association has formally been affiliated with the American Association for the Advancement of Science since 1969. Oh, in 69, with uh, the famous anthropologist... Uh, Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead standing up and, and telling the audience that they should vote for it. It wasn't an easy uh, accomplishment, and it's been tried to take it back. But and then the other person that worked, the Douglas Dean, worked helped to keep that going. Yeah. We would be remiss if we didn't talk about the Journal of Parapsychology. Yes, yes I'm so glad it's a. Uh, yeah, the the next issue will be uh, coming out in March. Uh, uh, we still don't have a permanent editor, but John Pruth is editing that one himself, and uh, it will have the review uh, by Jim Carpenter of our book, which uh, there was a book of letters, and the book review by Jim Carpenter, uh, the author of first, the inventor of First Sight, and a well-known researcher and clinician of himself, wonderful man, uh, has written a wonderful book review that we hope will help inspire other people who are serious and interested in the history of science and parapsychology to take a look at this book and see if the origins or the or things or letters which may help inspire them or, I don't know, if nothing else, just help educate young people coming into the field. But you're doing more in the way of education than anyone I know, so I think I put a plug in right now. Anybody wants to know what's going on in this field and peripherally, they need to be watching your YouTubes, your YouTube tapes. Thank you for that, Sally. You yourself were involved, if, if I recall correctly, after your father left Duke University, he set up the foundation for research on the nature of man. But at some point, that organization closed down and you helped establish the Rhine Research Center. Well, I didn't 
Yes, we, the staff and I met out at my house. I was uh, the um, assistant, uh, not the assistant. I was the, I was the uh, volunteer director at that point in time, uh, interim between a uh, uh, longer until we got John Cruz on, on board. And the staff brought it up. They said, we don't like it. Actually, John Palmer, to give him credit, he said, I don't like the name because it's, it indicates it's male and not female. You know, the nature of man should be nature of men and women. <laughs> so the group decided that they wanted it to be Ryan Research Center. And I said, no, 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 no. Neither one of my parents wanted their name involved. They tried very hard to keep out of that. They thought that was not a good thing. But I got outvoted. <laughs> so it's the Ryan Research Center. So the work is being carried on. Even as we speak, the Rhine Research Center, even during the pandemic, they're very active in online courses and training programs and research activities and community activities. We've never been more popular in terms of, uh, and other people, nonprofits, have, have heard the same thing. I don't know, it's just parapsychology, but people had a little more time to delve into things, as well as, I suppose, quite a few people lost people and wonder about the survival issue too, but they uh, certainly come to the Zoom classes, the, the courses, the online courses for credit, and then the evening, there's a, if you're all interested in research and you're doing it in this field, you can drop in and, and contribute to the research a discussion or there's a dream class, a course, and then people who have psych, we haven't said anything about psychic experiences because that's not paramount in this book. But my mother did that work to start this collection of them. And uh, they are uh, honored and are allowed to be discussed frequently uh, once a month in this uh, group, um, Psy Experience Group, that person can find by going onto the main the website. Um, we'll soon have a jazzier website up. Or it's on its way to come and have more little pictures and a little more about the history and so forth. But yeah, the, the Ryan Center is, is a an interesting place and when the doors are open there will be some going on things going on inside again but I hope we never get over the some of these Zoom or Skype in this case opportunities that allow us to talk to each other and it's so important uh, Jeff and what you're doing no one can no one else can can manage to, to really get to the heart of things except with an in, a good interview <laughs> Well, and I love doing it, Sally, and it's a pleasure to to talk to you, a, a great pleasure. I think that for young people today who want to get started in parapsychology, the Rhine Research Center is one of the very best resources anywhere in the world. So uh, for viewers out there uh, who are thinking of possibly having a career uh, in parapsychology, there's very few places that I would recommend more than the Rhine Research Center. Thank you, Jeffrey. That's that's really important. There are some other. I'm glad there are other. I wish there were more other places studying this. You know, there'll be one, a, a group which is focusing on one aspect of parapsychology um, and peripheral things like the, the remote viewers are now coming closer. We we had a shared a conference with them last summer. The Scientific Exploration Society of IONS uh, participates in a lot of things that overlap. And then, then I, I'm, I'm fond of the one that uh, I think Garrett started because I'm very fond of Lizette Coley, and, uh, who runs the Parapsychology Foundation. And there were, I may be missing 
some other major ones um, only in this country. Gosh, if you you could go on all night if you went around the world. Well, Sally, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you once again. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for being so patient with my technology uh, issues. <laughs> It's, I'm sure, a real thrill for our viewers to be able to have this experience of you because you can't travel everywhere, but this image will go all over the world. Well, I'm glad of that. And if people have experiences, psychic experiences, they can mail them to the Ryan Center. We're still collecting them, and I think there'll be some research going now, beginning more into that, picking up where my mother left off, and I tried to do that. So that's another thing, too. You, you, you can start with experiences and, and then do a little education along the side. And thank you, Jeff. Keep it up, and we'll keep watching you and listening to you. For those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.